we were tied up with uh, prayer meeting went a little extra long. Okay, just a reminder, Camp Arete is going on this week, so be sure to continue to pray for the kids, pray for the counselors, that they can make the issues clear and they can understand the problems, challenges, any difficulties that they have with the campers. It's a tremendous opportunity for a lot of those kids to um, to talk to somebody about their own spiritual condition and situation. Also, for Vacation Bible School next week on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, July 24th, 25th, and 26th from 9 in the morning to 12, I think we still need some volunteers. And we we can always use more kids, but I have heard how many? 25, okay, I heard 28, so um, something like that, so... 28, so that's that's like 10 or 12 more than last year, or about double last year. So that's just tremendous. That just come in, so we can uh, really pray for that. Also, uh, working on a brochure that should be up within a couple of days on the D.C. Bible Museum trip. Encourage people to watch the videos. Also look at other things that are going on uh, that you can do. Look at the uh, website for the National Holocaust uh, Museum site. Uh, that's not very far away, and other uh, areas of interest. By the way, last night I watched a movie that deals with the Holocaust. It's a fascinating story. The book, as usual, is better than the film, but the film just came out. You can get it on, I think, uh, on demand with with um, uh, Xfinity. You can also get it on uh, Amazon Prime. It's called The Zookeeper's Wife. And they, this is a Gentile family who made it to, was identified as righteous among the Gentiles in Warsaw who hid Jews under the zoo in Warsaw. It's a fascinating story. So uh, that's uh, just a side recommendation. Also, we'll be going to Israel next year. Whatever the issues are that are going on right now will not be issues probably six months from now. So don't let that bother you. Before class, we always begin with a uh, few moments of silent prayer in order to confess sin. Now, it's important to keep short accounts. You don't want to be like this. This is a cartoon. For those of you who can't read it, it's Hagar the Horrible, and the cartoonist was a believer. And the first panel, he's knelt down by his bed, and his wife says, good night, Hagar. Next panel, he's still there, kneeling, praying. She goes to sleep in the third panel. Down in the second row, she wakes up, snoring a little bit, and she says, and the sun's coming up, and she says, you've been praying all night. He said, not exactly. I've been confessing my sins. One person who saw that said, at that point, you're not confessing, you're bragging. (laughs) So we need to have a few moments of silent prayer. We're not going to go quite that long, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's such a privilege we have to gather together, to study your word, to be challenged, to learn, to uh, study through the whole counsel of your word, to learn about everything necessary to shape the way we think about reality and understand that there is more to reality than that which we can see, taste, touch, and feel. But there is an immaterial world 
comprised of immaterial beings, angels, and as well as fallen angels who are demons. Father, as we study tonight, help us to understand some aspects of this as it is central to the historic angelic conflict, beginning with Satan's rebellion, but it impacts and has impacted every believer in every age and in every dispensation. Father, we pray too for those that we mentioned on the prayer list. We pray for their testimony if they are dealing with health problems. We pray for their jobs, employment, and that you would give them the strength to rest and relax in you no matter what their challenges might be. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right. We are in 1 Samuel. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 30. And I have 1 through 18 on the screen. That should be 1 through 8 if we get that far. 1 through 8. Mostly we're going to start in verse 3. Uh, Just look at some of the background there. And so what we're coming to here is the end of the life of Saul. He has been the uh, king uh, in Israel, of the first king of the United Kingdom uh, that was established, anointed by God. He's not the first king, anointed king over Israel. That was pop quiz time. Who was the first king, anointed king over Abimelech? And in Judges chapter 9, okay, or Judges chapter 8, he's the first king. The men of Shechem anointed him king over Israel. So, but Saul is the first one God designates to be anointed king over Israel, and the first king over the United uh, Kingdom. And he has been a failure. He is a king that the people asked for that would be a king like everybody else had, like all the other nations had. And he has demonstrated that he is, in his rebellion to God, he's a believer. Uh, part of the reason we believe he is a believer is going to be found in this, this episode, this passage. But he is a believer. He's a rebellious believer. And there are a lot of things that we can learn from the negative lesson of Saul. We also learned that When he was younger, he was obedient to the Lord, and as he got older, he became more and more rebellious until the Lord took the kingdom uh, from him. So here we see his end, and what is pictured here in this episode where he goes to the uh, woman who is usually identified from the King James translation as the witch of Endor, he goes to her, this is his complete meltdown as a believer. But it, um, we'll, we'll look at the details of how this uh, has transpired and how this takes place. As I pointed out in the last few lessons from, the, from chapter 25, when Saul and David are together, the writer goes back and forth from David to Saul and then back to David synchronically as he takes them through at the end. So the scene, first there's a scene with David, then there's a scene with Saul, then back to David, back to Saul, until Saul is uh, kills himself on Mount Gilboa. Uh, we see a contrast in this section because that's why the writer does this. He invites us to examine them by contrast. We see a contrast in their leadership. 
We see a contrast in how they fulfill their, their responsibilities as the anointed king. We see a contrast in their approach to their spiritual responsibilities, their obedience to God. And we see God's blessing on David and God's judgment on Saul. We learned in these chapters about David's spiritual growth and his trust in God to fulfill his promises. All of David's tests ultimately boil down to the fact that David needs to trust God to fulfill the promise that he's going to put him on the throne. And that's very similar to what we saw when we studied Abraham. But Saul has to deal with the fact that he has been a failure. He's been rejected by God. God has taken the kingdom from him, and now he has to... Um, he has reacted harshly to that, rebelled further against the Lord, and now he is coming uh, to his end. What we see, the lesson we learn in this chapter is that Saul wants to do the right thing, but he wants to do it the wrong way. And that's a problem with so many believers and unbelievers. They want to do the right thing, but on their terms or what they think is the right right thing. And just to give you, sort of to front load you to understand what's going on here, Saul isn't seeking a demon. He's not going to the witch of Endor to get the witch of Endor's advice. He's not going to the witch of Endor to get demonic advice. He's going to the witch. What we learn in the opening here is that Samuel has died, and down in verse uh, 6, Saul has inquired of the Lord, and the Lord did not answer him. See, he wants to go to the Lord for answers to the problem, but he wants to do it the wrong way. He doesn't want to go to a false god. He's not into idolatry in that form. So he is going to, he's, he's gone to the Lord, he's inquired, the Lord doesn't answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by the prophets. So he decides that if the prophets won't tell him anything, I'm going to go get somebody who will bring Samuel back to me and I'm going to ask Samuel to tell me what the Lord wants me to do. So he's doing a right thing. He's trying to get guidance from God, but God is not talking and that's why he goes to the witch of indoors, not to get her counsel or demonic counsel, but to get Samuel brought back so that Samuel will tell him what God wants him to do. But he didn't listen before, and he is not given any option as to what to do this time. He's told this is the end. So what we see in these chapters as we go through is that the Philistine army has gathered together and they have uh, organized themselves and they've gone up to Aphek here, which is about halfway up the coast around modern, just to the northeast of modern uh, Tel Aviv. And they are going to go into battle against Saul. In this next map, what we see is Aphek here, which was at the top of the other map. They are going to move up the coastline they're going to cut through the pass uh, at Megiddo. This is the this controls in the Jezreel Valley or the Esdralon Valley or the Valley of Megiddo. They're all called this, the, by those different names. That that whoever controls that valley controls the trade. So economics are a big part of this for, for the Philistines. And we're going to see that the text says they set up their encampment 
at Shunem. Later we'll read about the Shunammite woman in the story with Elisha. And that is due north of Mount Gilboa. Now just another little history lesson or geography lesson. This is a rather large uh, mountain. We'll see pictures of it as we get to it. And just to the sort of the northwest side of Mount Gilboa is a spring called Herod Herod's Spring. Herod Spring is where Gideon thinned out his 300 lapping with their hands in the water. So this is where uh, Gideon fought the Midianites is very close to here. And the city of Jezreel is over here. I'll show you some pictures of this uh, probably next in the next uh, couple of weeks. But you can look out from the tell at Jezreel across this valley towards Endor and it's just flat. I mean, there's just nothing left there. Indoor was just a tiny little village at the time. There's nothing uh, really remarkable about it, nothing that would be uh, notable or uh, of any archaeological, great archaeological significance. So we're told in verse 3 where this scene, began, scene with Saul begins with a rehearsal of the setting, what has been happening, a reminder and in 1 Samuel 28.3 we read, Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city. And then we're reminded of something positive that Saul had done. And Saul had put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. Now we hadn't been told that before. But this was something that Saul would have done in his early years as king when he was more uh, obedient to the Lord and was concerned with fulfilling Torah. It's an indication that at one point Saul had been properly oriented to the Lord and to Scripture. 28.3 is a reminder of what we were told in 1 Samuel 25.1. Then Samuel died, and the Israelites gathered together and lamented for him and buried him in his home in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. Now that is far to the south as we have studied. And so what we've learned from this is that that this puts a certain time stamp on these events. There are certain things that are going to take place here after Samuel died that's described in chapter 25, uh, 26, and 27. Uh, After Samuel died, David moved his probably 1,000 to 1,200 people down to the wilderness of Paran. That takes a little time, a lot of logistics. That's where he had the encounter with uh, uh, Nabal and Abigail. That took up uh, some time, maybe a, a month or so, month to six weeks. He then moved his group from the wilderness of Paran down to the wilderness of Ziph. And it's at that time that the Ziphites reported on David's movements to Saul. He mustered, and Saul mustered his troops to go south after David. This was where David moved his people, and he's near the hill of Hakilah. And that's when Saul's army was sleeping at night. Saul's in the middle of them, and David uh, goes into the middle of the camp, and uh, he has the opportunity to kill Saul and doesn't. And so after that event, 
Then David decided the best thing to do was to take his people to Gath and to the Philistine side, but not to live in Gath, to live in Ziklag. All of that took probably six or eight months, maybe as long as a year. We're told that David was with the Philistines for a year and four months. So probably this whole time period uh, that's covered between chapter 25 and the beginning of chapter 28 is about a year and a half to two years, probably a little closer uh, to two years. So that gives us something of a of a good time frame. And then we read in the second half of verse 3 that Saul had put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. So this is our first introduction to these words in Samuel, so we need to take a little time to understand what is going on here and what the background is to this terminology. The first word that's translated mediums is the word ov. The word ov has a range of meanings. It uh, basically means a necromancer. That is someone who is attempting to speak to the dead or calling up the dead and claiming to have a, a conversation with someone who has died, whether it's recent or long time. And that activity is called a seance. So that's what a medium does. It's interesting. You look up the word medium in a dictionary, at least I double clicked on it, and it popped up with a couple of English dictionaries and this meaning was not one of them. It was like what kind of paint an artist uses. Well, that's the medium in which they are expressing their art. And uh, then it had to do with somewhere between rare and well done or in the middle between two extremes. But this wasn't a meaning, at least that popped up in that pop-up dictionary. So thought that was interesting. The idea of a medium, though, is a traditional term for someone often a synonym for the word spiritist someone who's trying to contact the dead now the word spiritist that shows up in this text is a little different word and we, anyway I'll get to that in just a minute when the writers of the Septuagint came along they interpreted the word ove to refer to a uh, a ventriloquist. There's three meanings. We'll get to that a little further on. There's three different ways in which the word of might be understood. The first meaning is that it has the idea of uh, of a you know like a bag or a bladder in which you would carry water or something like that. Um, and so this idea would would feed the idea of speaking for something and uh, a ventriloquist in the Greek word in gastromuthos would uh, fit that idea of something um, related to ventriloquism. The second meaning I've also thought may indicate the same thing because as uh, uh, the text talks about Samuel comes up from the grave. See, and so the typical act of the of the necromancer of the is that that they are speaking from not necessarily from themselves but from some place in the room where the voice is coming up out of the pit. That's another etymological uh, 
uh, source of the meaning of the word ove. And so that also, I think, would involve the idea of ventriloquism. So I've also always liked that idea. But we should stick with what the Hebrew says and not use the Greek term. This is the ove demon. It's not an engostromuthos demon. That's just using the Greek uh, interpretation and translation, which is not inspired, whereas ove is. So the ove demon is the one who's involved with the medium. And then you have the spiritist. This is a different word. In the Hebrew, it's the word yedeoni, and it's from the root yada, which means uh, to know something. So it has to do with some sort of esoteric knowledge. And these words, all the, we'll see other synonyms for other parts of this practice, like sorcery and uh, uh, wizardry and magic. And, and these, there's six or seven words, and they're all very close in meaning, and we don't really understand the fine distinctions between these different words and what they meant. There's a few ideas that we, we're going to look at, but we can't... Uh, draw really strong uh, conclusions because there's not a lot of examples of these u- words used in what the practices were, so that makes it a little, a little difficult. But this phrase, mediums and spiritists, is frequently used uh, in the scripture. The word uh, spiritist, as I put in, up here on the slide, King James translates it wizard. The Berkeley version translates it a fortune teller. Uh, the um, uh, Jewish Publication Society translates it a familiar spirit. That's the Tanakh and the New English Bible translates it the same way. The, the NEB also at times translates it spirit. Uh, other translations use the word magician or sorcerer, and it's, it's really fluid. So you don't get hard and fast terminology here because there's a certain degree of uncertainty. This word pair, Ov and Yidoni, often appear together in a number of verses. So I've got a couple of slides where I'm going to keep this list here, but then we'll lose it. So if you're trying to take notes and you want to get all of these verse references down, then uh, you need to write fast. Uh, Leviticus 19.31 and then chapter 20, verses 6 and 27, use the word prayer. Then it shows up again in Deuteronomy 18.11. In 1 Samuel 28.3, which is this passage, and in verse 9. Then it will appear again later on in 2 Kings 21.6 and 23.24, and then in some parallel passages in 2 Chronicles 33.6. Also shows up in Isaiah 8.19 and 19.3, as Isaiah is indicting the people of his time, and that's uh, somewhere around... Um, you know, 750, 760 B.C., he's indicting them for their idolatry and getting involved with the wizards and spirits who mutter and groan and whisper. So all of that relates to this practice of seeking revelation from the dead. That's the key idea, is they're looking for guidance, but not from the God of Torah, not from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not from Scripture, but they're seeking guidance from the dead. And this is a form of idolatry, and it is uh, punishable by death. 
So Saul is engaged in a capital offense, and guess what's going to happen to Saul? Within 24 hours, God's judgment is swift and certain, and uh, Saul's going to be dead. So the first passage to look at here to give us some background on this is in Leviticus 19.31. There we read, God saying, give no regard to mediums and familiar spirits. One of many these many passages where those are linked together. Do not seek after them to be defiled by them. I am the Lord your God. So what we learn there is a very strong word for defiled, which which is equivalent to an abomination before God. It, it, it is spiritually uh, you're just spiritually defiled. It's the opposite of being cleansed. You just become spiritual filth as a result of association with mediums and these uh, familiar spirits. And in the context of Leviticus 19, it's just a list of, of prohibitions one after another where God is telling the Israelites that when you go into the land, you're not going to do these things because you're not going to be like the people who live in the land. And it's highlighting the importance of the fact that they are to live separately. They're to be holy as God is holy, which means to live separately and distinctly from all of the pagans around them. They're not going to engage in the same practices of the pagans and the same belief systems. They're going to live separately and distinctly before the Lord. Then an even more severe warning is given in Leviticus 20, verses 6 and 27. Now, I'm changing slides. The verses are gone. But we're looking at them as we go through this. In Leviticus 20, verses 6 and 7, we see another prohibition, another warning as a, to the seriousness of this. The person who turns to mediums and familiar spirits. Now, where would we do that today? Well, it used to be you could call some kind of 1-900 or 800 or 700 number. They were advertised on TV. Finally, they got all that off of TV. That was back in the 90s. You get all these commercials all night to call these psychics and everything. Well, that'd be punishable by death. If you're looking at the astrology column in the newspaper, that would be punishable by death. If you're involved with tarot cards or with palmistry, so go to somebody, some gypsy to read your palm, that's all would be punishable by death. Give no regard, uh, excuse me, and the person who turns to mediums and familiar spirits to prostitute himself with them, I will set my face against that person. And we've seen that idiom in the Psalms that if God uh, shines his face upon you, that's grace and blessing. If God turns his face away from you, then that's judgment and cursing. And if he sets his face against that person, that's the withdrawal of his grace. And God says, I'll set my face against that person and cut him off from his people. Now, what does that mean to be cut off from his people? It's defined later on in the chapter. Leviticus 20:27 20, doesn't mean they're banished. A man or a woman who is a medium or who has familiar spirits shall surely be put to death. They shall, they shall stone them with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. It's a capital offense. So cutting them off from their people means to remove them from life. Capital punishment. This gets reiterated again uh, in Deuteronomy 18, 
10 through 12. Now, this is an important passage because it lists a lot of these different activities. Now, remember, Deuteronomy is Moses' last speech to the people before they go into the land, and he is warning them against compromise with the pagan beliefs of the people who live in the, in the land. And he says, There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. See, that's the first one. It's, it's idolatry. And this is practiced uh, many different times in the Old uh, Testament. This idolatry, in fact, it's understood at the time of the entry into the land that the people in the land are practicing human sacrifice and they're prohibited against it. Now, that may not mean a whole lot to some of you, but I wrote my master's thesis on Jephthah's vow and arguing that when Jephthah vowed to make an ola, a burnt offering out of whatever came out of the door of his house to greet him when he came home, that he would offer that to God as a, as a burnt offering. That's human sacrifice. But evangelicals have been very wimpy about some hero in the Bible that's mentioned in Hebrews 11 that he would have sacrificed his daughter uh, to to placate God out of a total ignorance of the Word of God. And I had a, a thesis advisor said they weren't practicing human sacrifice that early. And I said, well, what do you do with this verse? I didn't win that argument, but... Uh, and and there, at that time, there was only one or two works that were out that really established a case for human sacrifice at that time. It's a lot more now. But that's what he did. I said that one time when Wayne House was in the crowd. I said, these weenies who take that view, and Wayne said, that's the view I take. I said, you're a weenie. Jephthah has succumbed to, he's got pagan, there's nothing in there that indicates that he or Gideon or especially Samson had any knowledge of the doctrine. God was just using them as a military leader to deliver, deliver the people. But that's what was going on even at the time of the entry into the land, which was some 100 to 200 years before the time of Gideon and Jephthah. So they were sacrificing a living sacrifice of their infants to the god uh, Molech. So that was the first thing they're not to do. Or they're not to go to someone who practices witchcraft, whatever that is, or a soothsayer, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. See, it's not just that list of sins that's over in Proverbs that say these six things, yea, seven, are an abomination to the Lord. Getting involved with fortune-telling in any way, shape, or form, Ouija boards, palmistry, dowsing, um, any of these kinds of things are an abomination to the Lord. So we have this list of things. First of all, I listed the uh, sons and daughters passing through the fire. That's life, human sacrifice. And then second, we have the mention of witchcraft. Now, this is the same word that's used in the Deuteronomy. Um, this is the word that's used there and used in several other passages. In fact, it's used later in 1 Samuel 28. It's this word, kesem, which sometimes is translated divination. Sometimes it's translated witchcraft. Sometimes it's translated sorcery or fortune. You get the point that these words are not hard and fast. There, there, there's a certain amount of, 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 of uh, 
ambiguity to these words, but in a list like this, each one had its role and was uh, emphasizing something. So uh, this divination may have been a general word, but specifically it has the idea of using some sort of object uh, in order, whether it's... uh, uh, liver, whether it's using arrows or whether it's using some other physical object to ascertain uh, God's will. One of the key passages that shows us something about its more precise use is in Ezekiel 21, 21 and 22. Now, Ezekiel 21 is a passage where Ezekiel is talking about Nebuchadnezzar coming down from the north, and he is invading the land, and he is going to come to Jerusalem and conquer and destroy Jerusalem. And so he has an option, as he's in the north part of the land, to either take the Via Maris, which I was just talking about, the road by the sea, and to go to Egypt, or he could go to Jerusalem. And so the king of Babylon is pictured here as standing at the parting of the road, and he's got a decision to make, so he's going to seek the guidance of his gods through the various uses of divination. And he uses a divination, and there's the translation of the word kethem, to use divination, and the first is he shakes the arrows. And shaking the arrows is technically called bellomancy. And bellomancy is the use of arrows to determine God's will. And it would be something like this. They would take a bunch of arrows. They would mark one, and they'd throw them up in the air. And then when they landed on the ground, the marked arrow would point the direction they were supposed to go. So that was one form of divination. You might have done something like that as you were a kid, and you didn't know you were dabbling in the occult, did you? Took you a while to find out. Okay, then there's the teraphim. That's the second thing that's mentioned. Uh, He shakes the arrows. He consults the images. Now, we're not really sure how this took place. The teraphim were little idols. So you might have your big idols back home, but when you went on the road, you couldn't carry these big heavy idols with you, so you had these little idols. And you could pack them in the saddlebag. In fact, that's what happened when uh, when uh, uh, Jacob left uh, Laban, and he took Rachel and Leah with him, and they headed south. Well, well, Rachel grabbed the household idols, and she hid them in her saddlebags on the camels, and then she put her robes over it so nobody would see it. And when when uh, Laban wanted her to get down so he could search her saddlebags, she said, well, you know, it's the wrong time of the month. So he said, okay, well, I won't look. And that was, that was power in paganism. Possession of the teraphim were the power base. That was it. So he... Um, uh, the teraphim, how they consulted, I don't know if they sacrificed to the teraphim, what they did, but he consulted the teraphim, and he looked at the liver. See, he's not going to put all his eggs in one basket. He's, he's going to check every possible way to see if they all agree and give him the right direction. Now, looking at the liver, what they would do is they would take some kind of animal, probably a chicken, and they would kill the chicken, they would cut the chicken open, and they would pull out the liver, and they would cut it, slice it, look at it, and figure out from what they read in the liver, some priest doing his mumbo-jumbo, juju, black magic thing would come along and uh, tell you what the liver said. 
And so he looks at all of these and determines that what he needed to do was go to Jerusalem as a result of looking at these uh, these three things. So that gives us an idea of what divination is using something like that to determine uh, determine the future. So I've made a list here of these different words, and the word that is used for soothsayer has a root that has the idea of of uh, only it's only used eleven times, and it's sometimes translated sorceress or sorcerer or diviner, fortune teller, uh, someone who practices magic. Again, you see how these words somewhat overlap. And the root word is from a Hebrew word, it's me'onin, which has the idea of causing something to appear. So it would be somehow uh, they would create uh, apparitions. Uh, that would give the idea of direct what direction to go. And it's used that way in Judges chapter 9, verses 36 to 37. Then the interpreter of an omen. This is the kind of person who's going to wake up and, well, this happened this morning, so that must be what God, want, what God wants us to go in that direction. Or, well, we went out to start the car and the battery was dead, so that must mean that God doesn't want us to take the trip. You know, those kinds of things, we've all run into people like that, that, that something happens or they see some person and that indicates that they should or should not be doing whatever it's, what is that they're doing. Uh, someone who interprets omens would use various objects or events or sayings to foretell uh, the future. Then the word for sorcerer is a different word again. It's makasif, and it has the idea of sometimes it's translated witchcraft, which gets confusing when kesem is translated witchcraft, and it has the idea of someone who's able to perform signs to mislead God's people. Uh, that's used that way in Isaiah 47 9. And in uh, 9 and 12, and in Malachi 3 5. Remember, we'll go there tonight, Deuteronomy 13, where God says if someone claims to be a prophet or a dreamer of dreams or to have a vision or to heal and it comes true, don't believe that person if what they're telling you is contrary to God's word. Okay, so he, there's a, at least. The door is left open there that there are people who can actually heal and can actually tell the future and can actually do these things, but that's not the important issue. Too many people say, oh, that guy must be a prophet. He healed me. Let's go give all of our money and all of our intelligence to Benny Hinn. Uh, we just don't go along with that because the message is wrong. Uh, it, if the, the, the signs and wonders seem to be there and the message is wrong, the signs and wonders are counterfeit. Now, that's a, that word is applied to the signs and wonders of the Antichrist in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. And the Antichrist performs counterfeit miracles. Now, that doesn't mean that people aren't really healed. It, what's counterfeit is he's saying that he is the source of the healing um, and that he represents God. 
So Satan is the source of the healing rather than God. It's counterfeit in terms of it's coming from the wrong source. Okay, so that's the idea in sorcerer, people who use signs to mislead God's people. And then the ones who conjure spells, these are those who claim that they can cast curses or spells on people. The word that is used in uh, Deuteronomy there for a medium is the word that we have uh, uh, looked at, someone who can contact the dead, and the spiritist is someone who claimed they had hidden special uh, knowledge, esoteric knowledge about the future. So all of that kind of gives us a good understanding of what the scripture says about demonism, about this aspect of demonism seeking revelation apart from God to make decisions about the future. That's what Saul is doing. David is, has the high priest with him, has the Urim and Thummim with him, and he's going to seek God. Saul is also seeking God, like a lot of so-called Christians. They're seeking God, but they're doing the right thing the wrong way. God tells us there's a right way and a wrong way to seek him. And a lot of people think they can make up their own way to seek God, and it's not any good. Just like Saul, he's trying to use the devil's world and the devil's methods to seek God. So... There's a connection in the scripture between demonism and idolatry. And so let's work this through, look at some key passages. First of all, at the foundation of all demonic activity that we see in the Bible, at the the bottom line is idolatry. It's worshiping some creature or creation of God rather than worshiping God. There's that creator-creature distinction. We either worship God who created all things, created the angels, created the demons, created the rocks and the animals and the sky and the sun and the stars and the planets. God created everything. Idolatry is when we worship some aspect of God's creation. And as such, this is a violation of the first of the Ten Commandments. Now, what does that say? Exodus 20, verses 3 through 4. First of all, you shall have no other gods before me. Second, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And, that, and this isn't the idea. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't paint or you shouldn't sculpture. It is, and some people have taken it this way. What it means is you don't create these images to worship them. You don't paint, you don't sculpt in order to uh, worship aspects of creation. That's the context. Verse 5, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. So idolatry is worshiping anything in God's creation apart from him. There's our Old Testament foundation in the Torah, in the Mosaic law. Now we'll look at the New Testament foundation in Romans 1, 20 to 23. If you haven't almost memorized this by that, this time, you haven't really been paying attention in Bible class. I think I go to this passage more than I go to any other passage except about a half a dozen gospel passages. 
This is so critical for interpreting the world and interpreting reality. What this passage is saying is that there is general nonverbal revelation in the creation that gives evidence of God's existence and who he is. It, it, it speaks without words. It's a nonverbal uh, revelation. And all of this, Paul says, is clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. It is a, they're culpable, they're responsible for what they hear, what they see in that revelation. Now, when they see it, they have a choice to make. This is where volition enters in. A decision, do I want to know more about that God or not? I was talking to um, somebody recently, and they were talking about when when they were saved, then they were small, when they were about five years of age, that they were outdoors and they were outside, and they looked up at the sky, and they got they, somebody created this. They had that thought that there is, if there's a God who created this, I want to know more about them. And they were telling me that, and then within the year, they were with a friend of theirs, and then within the year, uh, they were invited by that friend to church and heard the gospel and were saved. That's the idea. We have this nonverbal testimony of God, and we can be positive or negative to that. Even if we're positive at God consciousness, that's the term that we use to describe that. When we become aware that there is a God, even if we're positive then, we may still reject any message that relates to the, the gospel of salvation. And we may be positive at God consciousness, and at our foundation still be positive, but reject everything we hear until God takes out a two-by-four and hits us up the side of the head, sort of like he did with the Apostle Paul. Nobody would ever guess that Paul would become a, a passionate believer in Jesus Christ up to five minutes before he got saved, up to five seconds before he was saved. Nobody would have ever thought that Paul would be a passionate Believer, because he was so negative and so hostile. So you can't ever judge what it looks like on the initial hearing of the gospel. So, but for those who are negative, Paul goes on to say, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. That's negative volition, rejecting God, nor were thankful. They were not grateful. A lot of people give lip service to being grateful to God. This is... But, but gratitude is a matter of the deep soul. It's not a matter of the surface of just saying you're thankful or going through the right words. They became futile in their thoughts. What happens when you don't follow the truth, then your thinking is harmed. It, is, it, is, uh, it becomes empty. It becomes useless because you're focusing on, on lies, on that which is completely false. They become empty in their thinking, and their foolish hearts are darkened. This is a process. They become darker and darker and darker and darker. That's why sometimes it's hard to witness to people who are older, because they're down in the very, they're down the tenth level of the basement of their soul in absolute abject darkness because they've just been denying God for so long. Professing to be wise, they all claim the right thing. Oh, I believe in God. 
They're so genuine. We believe in love. I don't think there's ever been a king who didn't believe in world peace. Now, they may think that to have world peace, they have to conquer everybody else in the world and kill everybody who disagrees with them, but they believe in world peace, just like every Miss America or Miss World. They all believe in world peace, okay? But they're fools because they've said in their heart that there is no God. And as a result of that, they've become idolaters. They've exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. But see, if we stop there, we think that idolatry just has to do with worshiping some sort of physical image or representation of animals or men or things in God's creation. But, but idolatry can be a matter of the mind. It can be a totally cerebral thing that doesn't have to do with worshiping anything physical. We can worship ourselves, and that is when we make ourselves out to be God and the ultimate reference point in our life. So the next point, I want to draw a distinction between two kinds of idolatry, what I'm going to call internal idolatry which is what happens in your soul when you're worshiping in your soul values or ideas or various things that are abstract. That's the worship, that's the internal idolatry. Then there's external idolatry. That really comes second. That's when you transfer that to some physical object, an idol made out of of wood or metal or stone or a tree or the celestial bodies, the stars and the moon, things like that. Paul uses idolatry to talk about greed. And that is materialism lust. You have, and that's what lust patterns are. Lust patterns all relate to making the object of lust your God. And that can be anything from uh, drugs to success to social life to, uh, to sex to marriage to family. It just anything in God's creation can be perverted into an idol. Uh, Paul says in Colossians 3.5, put to death your members which are on the earth. And by that he means the activities of your body, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, or greed, which is idolatry. Idolatry is the root cause of Israel's failure in the Old Testament. For example, in Jeremiah 3, 8, and 9, uh, Jeremiah is indicting Israel. This is just prior to their I mean, the southern kingdom of Judah just prior to their their collapse and their fall. And he says, Then I saw for all the causes for which backsliding Israel had committed adultery. Now, the adultery here is not physical adultery. The adultery here is spiritual adultery. Now, we have to define what spiritually adultery is because some people who didn't know any better define spiritual adultery as listening to some pastor rather than your pastor. That's not spiritual adultery as it's used in the Bible. Spiritual adultery in the Bible is when you worship another god, when you are worshiping an idol. That is spiritual adultery. You're being unfaithful to God. In the context of Israel, God is the husband of the nation Israel. 
Israel is to be faithful to God as her husband. And if she was faithless to God and got involved in idolatry, then she was committing spiritual adultery. So this is Jeremiah 3, 8 and 9. Um, Verse 9 says, So it came to pass through her casual uh, uh, casual harlotry that she defiled the land and committed adultery with stones and trees. See, she's worshiping idols made out of wood and stone. Uh, Ezekiel 6, 4 through 6, says something similar. Ezekiel also indicts that generation and says, Then your altars shall be desolate. Your incense altars shall be broken, and I will cast down your slain before your idols." And I will lay the corpses of the children of Israel before their idols. What had they been doing? They had been sacrificing their children to these idols. And now Ezekiel is saying the Babylonians are going to come and they're going to destroy Jerusalem and they're going to kill all your children and they're going to bury them there where you had those idols of Moloch down in the um, uh, Valley of Gehenna. Verse 6, In all your dwelling places the cities will be laid waste, and the high places shall be desolate, so that your altars may be laid waste and made desolate. Your idols may be broken and made to cease. Your incense altars may be cut down, and your works may be abolished. That's how God was going to cleanse the land. Now, fourth, we learn from passage we studied in 1 Samuel 15 is that idolatry is a form of rebellion. We Everybody knows God is the ultimate sovereign of the universe, but when they reject that, that is rebellion against God. That's what Saul was accused of. In 1 Samuel fifteen twenty three, this rebellion is disobedience to God, and that's Saul's foundational sin for which he is being punished. Uh, 1 Samuel fifteen twenty three says, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. There's that word kesem again. It's the word divination. Primarily, Rebellion is as a sin of witchcraft or divination, and stubbornness is as iniquity. That's the Hebrew word avon, which means to transgress the law. And idolatry, that's the use of teraphim, the use of the little household gods. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, that has to do with revelation, the command of God to slaughter all the Amalekites, God has rejected you from being king. So now in our fifth point, demonism then involves different stages or degrees of involvement. You can have a light to heavy involvement on demonism. It just depends on how heavily you're immersed in whatever it is you're practicing. As a kid, you might go to some party and somebody has a Ouija board and that's it and you're out of there. But then you can really get into that and start reading all the different materials and on the occult and really get involved with that. So there's different levels of involvement with demon-based activities, which include idolatry. Now, just because you, you play with the Ouija board doesn't mean you're going to pick up a demon. There are a lot of Christian writers who talk like that, that you go someplace, you go down to a Hare Krishna temple, as I did as a student at Dallas. We had to investigate all these different religions and find out about them. And so I went down to a Hare Krishna temple one day and uh, kind of played with their minds a little bit. 
they they think they can influence your soul if they give you food or water to drink. And I would just act like, oh, no, I'm not thirsty at all. And I was making a point out of not taking it. And then they would say, oh, well, you know, how about a brownie? Or, no, 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 I'm, I'm not hungry. I just had lunch. I'm full. And uh, they were just going nuts trying to get me to eat something or drink something. And I was having a lot of fun. But some people think that you're going to pick up a demon if you do that. And I remember the only time I ever thought that might be possible, I was actually in a Christian church out in Southern California at the Vineyard Conference on Spiritual Warfare. And there was what I thought so so much weird activity there. I thought, you know, Lord, you've got to really have those angels around me because this is the most bizarre place. And then the next day they had this old 1950s faith healer come out. And they talked about, oh, last night when he was healing, there was a blue light that came and hovered over different people. And that blue light would speak to him and tell him all this information about that person. And he would heal him. And it was so powerful. It blew it blew the switchboard. It blew the, the computers. And it blew the lights. And I went, wait a minute, I was here. I don't remember that. And everybody was going, ooh, God was here last night. So it gets really bizarre out there. So there's different levels of involvement, but God protects us if we're believers from this kind of stuff. It's not all this superstitious mumbo-jumbo that even a lot of Christians get into. But demons are involved with idolatry and with the gods and goddesses. I want you to turn your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Because what we get from our nice little post-enlightenment rationalist world is that people worship these things, and that's all they are is objects of wood and uh, silver or gold or something else. So we read in 1 Corinthians 10. Now, this is a fascinating chapter because it starts off where Paul is telling us that we need to pay attention to what the fathers did, meaning Moses and his generation and the conquest generation, because Uh, What happened to them was for our example. Verse 6, now these things, that includes the blessings and the curses and the punishment and all the 40 years in the wilderness, these things happened for our example to the intent that we should not lust after evil, evil things as they also lusted. And then, and do not become idolaters. Now, when did they become idolaters? At the base of Mount Sinai. When, they, when Moses was gone for more than a couple of hours, they started getting restless, and so they convinced Aaron to make an idol. They melted down their gold, and he made a golden calf. And Now, they weren't really into heavy idolatry. They were into what I call religious idolatry because they made this golden calf, and who did they call the calf? This is Yahweh. This is the God who brought you out of Egypt. That's the same thing that uh, Jeroboam does later on. He calls his golden calf Yahweh, the God who brought him out. It's just getting, it's doing the right thing the wrong way, and therefore it's wrong. So they get into idolatry, and then he goes on and he talks about various things until you get down to verse 14. In verse 14, he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. Now, Psalm 115, 4 through 7 talks about the fact that in and of themselves, idols can't talk, can't speak, can't think. Uh, They don't walk around. They can't even mutter. Now, that's an important word because that's the word that's applied to what these ove demons do is they mutter and they whisper. That's through their ventriloquism. Uh, 
Then you skip down to verse 18, and Paul says, Observe Israel after the flesh. Okay, so we're going back to our example from the Old Testament that they were into idolatry, and they ate of these sacrifices to their false gods, and that made them participants in that evil. He goes on to say, What am I saying thing? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to an idol is anything? It says, rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. That's his point. The idols are really nothing, but there's something behind those idols. There's something that empowers them, and that's demonic. So demons are behind Islam. Demons are behind Hinduism, Buddhism. Demons are behind all the various spiritistic religions, astrology, all of the false religions, everything but Christianity. Demons are behind that. So that's what we learned from Deuteronomy chapter, I mean, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And then we're going to close out. My last point, uh, number six, is that the ultimate issue then relates to divine guidance and direction, getting revelation. And that's where Deuteronomy 18 takes us. Deuteronomy 18 in the context says, You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. So Deuteronomy 18, Leviticus, or all those passages are surrounding what does it mean to live holy before God. So you shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you will dispossess, listen to soothsayers, and diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not appointed such for you. See, they listen. They're getting revelation. They're getting information to make the decisions of their life. And he said, and, and Moses says, that's not what God's appointed for you. The Lord your God will raise up a prophet for you. Now that is a messianic promise. He said, the issue though is revelation. Where are you getting your information? Is it coming from the cosmic system? Is it coming from demons? Or is it coming from the, from the Lord? Is it based on revelation? Are you getting doctrines of dream, demons? And in Deuteronomy 13, passage I alluded to earlier, Moses says, If there rises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or wonder, and it actually happens. And the sign of the wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you. So it's not fake. It's not somebody who just had a psychosomatic illness and Benny Hinn waves his hand over them or some of Amy Simple McPherson waves her hand over them and they're healed. This is, the, the, and it's just something in their mind. This is something that actually happens. The sign of wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you saying, let us go after other gods. So first he comes and he heals and then he tells them to go do something that is a violation of God's word. Let's worship other gods. See, it's the content, not the sign or the wonder that's important. That's what was wrong with the whole vineyard movement. It was called the signs and wonders movement. They put the emphasis on the wrong thing. Deuteronomy 13.3, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. The test is, are you going to listen to his word 
and his word exclusively are you going to look into the doctrines of demons and and uh, information from these spiritists and soothsayers to get your guidance for life James 4 7 gives us our real confidence submit to God resist the devil and he'll flee from you God is our fortress let's bow our heads and close in prayer Father, we're thankful for this time to go through this material to realize that we live in a world that is peopled by more than we can see, that we have creatures, angels, and demons who are around us, who influence world history, who influence us, who are involved in attacks against the church, against Christianity, and against Christians, and against pastors. And Father, the strength that we have is that we're in Christ that because we're in Christ, we're to stand firm. That's what the passage here in James says. We're to resist or stand firm. We're not to attack the devil. We are to resist, and you will protect us, and the devil will flee from us. Father, as we study this important passage in First Samuel, help us to understand the role of uh, demons and spiritual warfare and how this was seriously a part of what was going on in Israel and their national dynamics and national politics at that time, just as it is today in every nation on this earth. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.